host, James Ritazzi. This week's episode includes a discussion of the word, Amen. The discussion first begins with the question of Acts chapter 7 and the stoning of Stephen. It might be helpful for you to read Acts chapter 7 before continuing. The discussion then turns to some comments that Jesus made recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 5 in particular beginning at verse 19 to the end of the chapter. You might want to also familiarize yourself with John chapter 5 in preparation for the following discussion. After we listen to the discussion, I'll have some hopefully helpful summary comments. So any thoughts? You want to look at Acts 7 and 1 real quick? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Just, just so that you can... I mean, I basically understand the meaning, but you can you can talk about the why they chose the most specific the specific phrase. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you stiff-necked stiff people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Which verse are you at? You're oh, at 51. Acts 51. <laughs> Sorry. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. But that phrase circumcised in heart and ears. It's just <laughs> so he has a question. Who's Stephen preaching to? I'm guessing the Jews here. Right. Often the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as what? Uncircumcised. Right, and as a derogatory term. What he's doing is he's turning their own racial prejudices on them. Because what did they believe about the Gentiles? They, they believed the Gentiles were... Inferior. Yeah, they were dogs. That doesn't come from Scripture. In fact, there's a whole lot of stuff in the Mosaic Law about how you shouldn't unfairly treat the foreigner or uh, someone who's not of your family that's residing in your household. Yeah, so how this evolved is just like how cultures often evolve. And stiff-necked, often the prophets would refer to people who were being disobedient as stiff-necked. What does that mean? So what does stiff-necked, first of all, mean? When someone says, you stiff-necked person, what are they referring to about It seems like they're, they're set in their ways. They're not willing to look around and see what, you know, actually is. They're just, you know, they're like... This is how I learned it, so this is how it's going to be. That's what I picture. Yes, basically people who are stubborn, people who don't want to be corrected. So you're trying to tell them something they need to know, and they're like, 
well, it's just not the way we do it here, you know. It's the way we've always done it, and our father before them, and his father before him, and et cetera, et cetera. Or whatever reason. They're unwilling to repent, first of all, because that's what repenting is all about, right? Repenting is looking at whatever you've been doing and saying, oh, I've been wrong, and then making the proper change. So that's a term that they understood, because it's an Old Testament term the prophets used. And then um, uncircumcised in heart and ears. So he's saying they're uncircumcised with meaning what? There's actually multiple, yeah. multiple answers you could give. All you have to do is think about, well, what do they think about the Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles are ignorant because they don't have the word of the Lord. And the Jews also consider themselves special because they had the word of the Lord, which in a certain sense is true. So you're ignorant, you're common, you're all the things that you despise about everybody else. That's what the uncircumcised is saying to them. In other words, you're like the Gentiles, which you, know, you look down on. So what's the difference then in heart and in ears? So you're uncircumcised in heart, which means... This was kind of my question, yeah. I, yeah. I'm not, I didn't know if there really was a difference. <laughs> so what does it mean that, well, you're uncircumcised in heart? When they say blank in heart, what do they mean? Feelings or beliefs or your inner being, I guess? Yeah, it's deeply felt. When someone says to you something like, take this to heart, what are they telling you? Really integrate this into your thinking. Feel strongly about this thing. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching to the people, actually, it happens here too, by the way. The same phrase gets used in this chapter also. But in Acts chapter 2, when it says, they're cut to the heart. It means they're seriously wounded. Like, you could insult me and say, you know, I don't like those shoes. And I might say, who cares? <laughs> but if someone says to me, I don't like the way you live your life, then that's something I'm going to take more to heart. So then, what does uncircumcised in ears mean? So, you're uncircumcised in heart. That means your heart is not where it's supposed to be. Like he says before, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So your heart is not in agreement with the Holy Spirit. That's why you're resisting the Holy Spirit. Because what's Stephen speaking by? The Holy Spirit. He's delivering the message from the Holy Spirit. He's delivering a very harsh message, too. His sermon here is not sugar-coated at all. And then he continues, because he talks about their history, too. Because And Jesus would do this, too. When the Jews would say, well, we're not like our fathers who stoned the prophets. And Jesus says, you're indicting yourselves immediately. You're the offspring of the people who stoned the prophets. So you're uncircumcised in heart, meaning that your heart is resisting the Holy Spirit. Your heart is not in agreement with the Holy Spirit. So you're going off in a different direction. And when someone comes with... The message the Holy Spirit has for you, which is what Stephen is, right? Someone comes preaching the gospel. The message from the Holy Spirit, what are you supposed to do first? Be open to listening to it? Yeah, listen to it, right. And what do you use to listen? Your heart. <laughs> yeah, so that's what that means. Not only are you in your heart harboring thoughts and ideas and your entire religion has wandered away from the Holy Spirit. And so in your heart, the things you firmly believe, 
or resisting the Holy Spirit. So that's what it means when I'm saying uncircumcised in heart. This is me being Stephen. And you won't even listen. So you're uncircumcised in heart and you won't even listen. Does that make sense? Does why that didn't, seem why to be what he's say saying? Uncircumcised in mind instead. Because ears seem like a. Perhaps. Like heart, I would say heart and mind would make a lot more sense. Well, but heart and mind are in a way very closely related, right? Yeah, but. He's saying something entirely different when he says ears. Because when well, he says. Well, yeah. what would be the difference between heart and. I mean, mind and ears here? Like, if you picked that one instead. Like, what would you get from ears that yeah, you would get mean, from mind? Yeah, I mean, he could have just as well said that. I agree. Because what's going to happen if your mind is so dead set against something? You're not even going to listen. Someone's going to start saying the thing and you're going to close your ears and go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. And so that's kind of what he's saying. But you're right. He could have just said, uncircumcised in heart and mind, and it would have meant more or less the same thing. She chooses to say ears here, and ears is kind of more specific than mind, right? Ears is just saying, yeah, you're not going to listen. Uncircumcised in heart, meaning that the beliefs that you hold dear are not in agreement with the Holy Spirit. And uncircumcised in ears, meaning, and you won't even listen. And it's also an interesting vehicle that he uses that you are uncircumcised in, because it's almost like, your heart and your ears aren't even an appropriate place. <laughs> if a Gentile wants to be a Jew, what's the first thing they have him do? Circumcision. Circumcision, exactly. So when he says you're uncircumcised in heart, it's like the opposite of being sanctified. It's like you're, you're unsanctified. This is just an insult. But perhaps the fact that they were uncircumcised in heart and ears is more informative about how they finally react to him. And they stop their ears. Why did they want to stone Stephen? Because they... In my mind... Well, I, don't know, I guess I'm probably... I should read into it for myself. Um... You can do what it generically means, and then you can do in your mind, because it's kind of helpful to apply some of these concepts to yourself, too. What are you thinking to answer? I mean, probably because they thought he was speaking falsehoods, but then at the okay. same time, I think same also thing. that they see some truth in what he's saying, but they, <laughs> they say, you know, again, they're stiff-necked people, and so they say, you know, even, you know, stop talking because you're bringing up something that's too close to you know, something that might change my mind and then I'll lose power and prestige and all this good stuff. You know? That may perhaps be true. Why did the Pharisees and the Sadducees want to kill Jesus? Because they didn't want to what? I think because they didn't want to lose the people and the power that the people gave them. Perhaps, but there's an even simpler answer there. It's true that they were politically minded and they didn't want to lose their power in their place because they even say that. They want but to be seen as wrong theologically. Okay, also true, <laughs> but even simpler than that. What does God expect from us? Let's go back to the Okay, so what did they not want to do? They didn't want to 
truly understand what God wanted them right. to believe. They didn't want to believe him. He comes and he says, I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for for 1,500 years, right? They didn't want to believe that. Now, there are various reasons why, various things that blinded them to believing. And one of them is, they were worried about, well, what are the Romans going to do to us if we follow this guy? And so, we got to do something about him. But if you really believed he was the Messiah, you wouldn't be worried about the Romans. He's the chosen one of God. Who's more powerful, God or the Romans? So they didn't want to believe that he was the Messiah, so they were like, well, what are we going to do about this guy? Well, we got to stop him, or else we're going to lose our place. Exactly true. But some people... There were other things preventing some other people from believing Jesus. They had their human traditions that didn't agree with a lot of what Jesus was teaching. And that was preventing them from seeing that Jesus was the Messiah. Because the state that their religion was in, and the traditions that they had, Jesus came and did not exactly adhere to their human traditions that they added to the teaching of God. So because of that, they were unable to see him as Messiah either. You know, the very simple pedestrian one that they gave in Mark chapter 7 of washing hands is given specifically there. But what's the one they're always accusing of Jesus of not doing? Not honoring the traditions of the elders? Forget about Mark 7. What in other places are exactly not honoring the Sabbath? And Jesus went out of his way to rub their faces in it. He didn't say, all right, well, maybe I, I won't do any miracles on the Sabbath because I don't want to bug anybody. But he specifically wanted to make a point. What you people have done with the Sabbath is distorted it completely beyond recognition from what the text says it is. So he specifically healed people on the Sabbath and did other things that they found offensive because of their human traditions. From, from what you understand, what was the Sabbath supposed to be then? A Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. Meaning what though? Well, how, how rest how? Because obviously they, their answer wasn't fully correct, but... What do you, think? you see, what they added a lot of rules and a lot of extra refinements to it. So you weren't supposed to work. Mm -hmm. So that's why when the manna was sent, you got twice as much Saturday. on Friday. On oh, Friday, yeah. Right. So that when the Sabbath came, which was really began Friday evening, so then you didn't have to go out and gather. So you weren't supposed to work. You were supposed to be done with your work for the week and you were supposed to rest on the Sabbath. And that was a reminder of what? Of God's resting on the Sabbath. Yeah, right. So God created everything, and on the seventh day he rested. It was a weekly reminder of wanting to enter God's rest. What concept do we usually connect with God's rest? Heaven. Okay. Remember, there is a Sabbath rest for the believers now, and that's heaven. We don't have a weekly reminder that we have to honor the Sabbath like the Jews had, but we're still looking forward to eternal life. So that's what the Sabbath was all about. It was a reminder to them of something that God promised, that they would enter his rest. 
What did he say specifically about the nation of Israel in the desert who disobeyed, who died in the desert? What did he say? So I swore, this is God talking, I swore in my anger they will they will not enter my rest, exactly. And the promised land was a figure for that, but really the bigger picture was, yeah, they weren't going to get into the nation of Israel. They were not going to possess the land. But the more important issue is, because of their unbelief and their disobedience, the overall message of the Bible is, you're not going to enter his rest, eternal life. So that's what the Sabbath was all about. So Jesus would heal somebody on the Sabbath, and they'd say, you're not supposed to do anything at all on the Sabbath. And then Jesus would say, wait a second now, if you've got like an animal falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're not going to go, oh, I can't rescue you, it's the Sabbath. No, you're going to do what needs to be done to rescue that, that animal. It was God who invented the Sabbath, but the Jews turned it into a burden. What did Jesus say? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what does that mean? What human traditions will do by expanding on these things, instead of keeping these things as a revelation and a reminder of a good thing to help you enter eternal life, you're turning them into a burden. You're wearing them like a noose around your neck. And not only that, but it's going to blind you to seeing God's real instruction. Because that's what was going on when Jesus came. Jesus came and was teaching stuff, and they were focused on how Jesus wasn't conforming to their human traditions. So they didn't see him as Messiah. You get that all the time today. What are some examples of things that you might be talking to religious people, and they might say, hey, how come you don't do such and such, or something that some people have a heartfelt belief in, but won't listen to you because you say, wait a second now, that's not exactly right. Give me an example. Yeah, that's a great example. A lot of things in Catholicism, like daily, or I guess weekly confessing of sins, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't really know a whole lot about Why don't you listen to the Pope? Why don't you have priests? Why don't, why don't they, they Yeah, why don't they dress up in outfits like we do? Why don't you have rosary beads? Why don't you have stations of the cross? Why don't you have all these things that we do, none of which are in the Bible? So they're going to look down on you and say, you know, we've got a lot of pomp and circumstance and ceremony that seems really holy. And I can testify to that. When you're in it, it does seem really holy. I've been in choirs singing at cathedrals at a high mass, and it like seems like, wow, this is a great spiritual thing that's going on. It's completely not. Because it's not according to the instruction that we find in God's Word. So it's the kind of thing that if, if I walked into that cathedral in the middle of a high mass and say to people, what you're doing here is wrong, what are they going to do? The ushers are going to remove me from the church before I can say another word. You know? so the creatures that fall into a pit are a sheep in Matthew and then a son or an ox in Luke. Okay, so the Luke one is probably the one that I'm referring to. And Jesus poses the question, and I think it's in that passage in Luke, so is it right to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? He's reducing their argument to absurdity. Because Jesus was going about doing good. And Jesus was the author of the Sabbath, so he's going to know how it's done. So they came to him and said, Ah, oh, you're doing something wrong because you don't honor the Sabbath. 
that should be an important lesson to us. When somebody comes to any of us, someone comes to me, someone comes to you and says, I don't know if what you're saying is exactly right, we should listen. At least consider it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely consider it. And listen, which, how many times are you in a conversation with somebody and they say something and it kind of gets you off and you're thinking about what you're going to say and they're still talking? Or sometimes somebody says something and you want to interrupt them. You want to talk over them and start talking. Well, you're not listening. That never happened. <laughs> you're not listening anymore because actually you're stopping them in talking. You see that all the time on TV, on the political shows, people talking over each other. You know, listen for a while. I mean, if they're filibustering, you can stop them. The point is, you should listen. And so I think that Stephen putting the emphasis on heart and ears, it's focusing on what's about to happen to him. They wanted to stone him because they didn't want to believe him, so they didn't want to listen, and so obviously they weren't going to follow anything that he said if they weren't even going to listen and believe. So what he was saying, he was saying by the Holy Spirit. So he was like, Jesus was only doing and saying what God had told him. Stephen was doing the same thing. So they had to listen. What if Stephen came and said, in my opinion, I don't like those outfits that you're wearing. They may have been equally as insulted, but it would not have been helpful to them because it doesn't matter what kind of outfits they're wearing. And it would not have been what the Holy Spirit was telling Stephen to say. So our expression of our faith needs to be down to what the Holy Spirit has told us. That's how we can speak with authority. You get how that's connected? Speaking with authority and only saying what the Father has told us? Mm -hmm. Because I might have an opinion about something. Yeah, well, God might, in this certain situation, might want to do a miracle, but I can't say with authority that God's going to do this miracle or not do this miracle. But I can say with authority, what must I do to be saved? Well, you need to repent, you need to be baptized, you need to stand firm to the end. I can say all those things, and if someone says, what, what are you talking about? I don't think that's true. I can refer to God's word and say, it's exactly true because that's exactly what it says. If I say, and then you need to be obedient to the Pope, well, I can't say that. I have no authority to say that because it doesn't say that in God's word. That's a very important thing, because what most religion deteriorates into over time is people talking about things that they can't say with authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does the very last two verses of Matthew chapter 7 say? Where he was teaching them as one who had authority. Right not as their scribes. So the scribes were knowledgeable about the scriptures because what was it their job to do? Why were they scribes? Yeah, they were copying it. They were supposed to be copying it. I mean, there's the word. It was their job to copy it exactly so that it could be passed on. But they would take the word that they knew because they would copy it down and write it down and they knew they couldn't change it. But then when they would teach, they would add all sorts of other things to it. And you can't say those things with authority because 
they aren't what handed you from the Father. That concept is very important. Jesus was always all about having authority. This is one of those, these, this last verse of Matthew chapter 7 that a lot of preachers won't get. This idea of, so Jesus taught with authority, and I asked him the question, well, why did, I'll ask you the question, why did Jesus teach with authority? Why did he? Yeah, or what does that mean, Jesus was teaching with authority? What's that about? Or, why am I reading this? What does this have to do with me? How do we apply this to us? I already kind of gave you the answer. But what's going on here? What does this connect with? How Jesus is teaching with authority as opposed to their scribes. I would say, in this case, he was teaching things that lined up with the Old Testament, but were a new understanding of them? It's even simpler than that. What did Jesus and the scribes have in common? Religious figures, sort of, and that were trying to teach what God wanted. Right. Both of them had access to the Word of God. But how did the scribes handle it, and how did Jesus handle it? Well, we know how Jesus would handle it. Jesus said, I'm only going to say what the Father has told me. I'm not going to add to it. I'm not going to subtract from it. I'm just going to say just what the Father has told me. So I'm going to speak with authority. You know, that's like the metaphor that I always use. What if I'm a friend of the landlord, and you're behind in your rent? And the landlord says to me, tell Jeremy he better catch up on his rent. And we're just talking, and I say, oh, by the way, I talked to the landlord, and he said, you better catch up on your rent. And you're like, oh, well, I'm, yeah, maybe, you know, will he give me another couple of weeks? And I can say, well, maybe I guess he will. I can't say he'll give you another couple of weeks with the same authority as you better catch up on your rent because all the landlord said to me was you better catch up on your rent. So I can relay that with authority. And the other thing I can say, yeah, well, maybe, but you're taking a chance because he's already expressed his displeasure with your lateness so far. But what were the scribes doing? What was the state of the Jewish religion at that time? They had added all these human traditions on top of what God's teaching was. And they were aware that there were different sects that would say different things. And you still have that today. If you see a bunch of old Jewish men getting together, what are they going to talk about? Oh, well, my rabbi says, or, or our particular group does this, and you Hasids wear the hats and everything else. They take pleasure in going over their differences. But can any of them say with authority, yes, but the thing that I'm doing is exactly what God is teaching, because it's all human tradition. So that was the difference between Jesus' teaching, that he only did and said what the Father told him. Shouldn't we do likewise? So we should do our very best to have our religious life and our preaching be exactly what the Bible says, and add as little as possible, even if it seems like a good idea, like washing hands. And if we do wash hands because all of our members work in the coal mines and when they get here, their hands are really dirty, so I tell you what, everybody, now it's time for us to all go wash hands because we're going to have the Lord's Supper and I don't want to eat the coal dust from your hands, whatever it is. In a way, it becomes a tradition. Okay, now it's time for us to wash our hands, so we all go wash our hands. Well, we have to make sure that everybody understands that the washing of the hands wasn't from the Word of God. 
but it's something that we do, just like everybody doesn't have to come to Ripley Greer on Sunday to worship. We have to gather together and all the members of this local church have to be here. It doesn't have to be at Ripley Greer, it can be in any appropriate place. So we have to make sure that people understand that, so that's why you have preaching and teaching and the public reading of scripture, so people know, that's scripture, this is not. Because what's going to happen is people are going to look at what you do who don't know, who don't take the time or the bother to read exactly what the text says, and they're just going to look at what you do and think all of it's binding. So if they're always wearing purple shirts, oh boy, God says wear purple shirt. God says meet at Ripley Greer. God says wash your hands. None of those things are true. So what we have to do is we have to be able to say, like Jesus did, what did Jesus often open or close his statements with? It's a, maybe not a fair question. This is what fairly, I was saying. <laughs> exactly, you got it. Right, John chapter 5. He does it a couple of times in here. But he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. That's an interesting word. So the verily, verily, or the amen is actually from the Hebrew to the Greek. It's the same word. It's been transliterated. It's a very important word. And so what does that mean? When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, what's he saying? My interpretation, our understanding is he's saying, listen to this because it's true. Yeah, exactly. And he says it twice. What happens when you say something twice? You just tune it out. <laughs> yeah, saying really pay attention to this part. We do that today quite often. That's an important concept. And then when this word appears at the end of a, uh, a thing, it's usually translated what? Amen. Okay. It's the same word. So that's an interesting word. John chapter 5, verse 19, my interlinear. Verily and amen. At the beginning of a discourse, surely, truly, of a truth. At the end, so it is, so be it, may it be fulfilled. It was a custom which passed over from the synagogues to the Christian assemblies. The Jews at that time in the synagogues would say amen at the end of something. That when they had offered, who had read or discoursed or had offered up solemn prayers to God, the others responded with amen, and thus made the substance of what was uttered their own. So not only are you saying, you're saying I completely agree, but this is a truth that I firmly am committed to what you're saying. Quite often, what's the attitude of the rank and file members of the church when the preacher is up there preaching? I would think that there's, or at least I would hope, I, for me at least, I would hope that this is all biblical truth that he's saying. Right. But what often happens, the rank and file are like, well, I don't 100% agree with what he's saying, but he's our preacher, so mm -hmm. this is... Quite often people are like, okay, I agree with 80% of what he's saying. That little bit I don't. <laughs> are you able to say amen then to his thing? Or quite often when you're led in prayer, people are saying something in prayer. If someone prays something and you don't agree with it, you can't say that's the absolute truth, then you shouldn't say amen. Amen is not just the something that just gets said. If I say, in Jesus' name we pray, you mindlessly respond with, let the church say, amen. No, what you're supposed to be doing is, if I completely agree with what you just prayed, 
What you just prayed is exactly in keeping with God's instruction and God's will. Then I can say amen. Or if you say something, I can say amen. And I'm saying, you yeah, ain't it the truth. But not only am I saying ain't it the truth, part of the definition what it says here, you're making it your own. Yes, I believe that too, as strongly as you do. And that's why when Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say to you, this is absolutely true, quite certainly true, and you need to make this your own. You need to hold on to it with the same certainty that I'm holding on to it. Why, Jesus? Because it's exactly what the Father, this comes directly from God. God to me, to you. I'm not changing it, I'm not modifying it, I'm just delivering it to you. So what's the only thing you can do with it and be pleasing to God? You can embrace it the same way I'm embracing it. And quite often Jesus would say things to people and they would be like, I don't know if I agree with that. And why? We already discussed why, because their traditions have moved away. Well, it also says in this commentary here that I thought was good, the word amen is a most remarkable word. It was transliterated directly from the Hebrew into the Greek of the New Testament, then into the Latin, so when they translate it into Latin, and then into the English and many other languages, so that it is practically a universal word. It has been called the best-known word in human speech. The word is directly related, in fact, almost identical to the Hebrew word for believe or faithful. Thus it came to mean sure or truly an expression of absolute trust and confidence. That's a very interesting commentary. So it's related to believe, which means what? I believe what you're saying is exactly what God is saying. Because what's God looking for, for from us? He's looking for us to believe. Believe and then follow. So how are we going to believe? So then it gets into that whole thing that the Apostle Paul does in Romans 10. How can we believe if we haven't heard? If no one's told me the word of God, then how am I going to believe it? And then how am I going to hear if it hasn't been preached? And how am I going to preach if they haven't been sent? And then how blessed are the feet of those and that, that comfort word of God. Then he says, therefore, and this is the opposite of what's going on in Acts chapter 7. Therefore, faith comes from hearing, which means faith comes from listening. And listening to what in particular? Listening to the word of God. So you must be someone who listens. What does it say in James? Everyone must be quick to follow the word. Yeah, quick to listen, exactly. It's like, you know where I'm going with this. Quick to listen and slow to speak. Our fundamental spiritual act should begin with listening. And you see it in many times in Acts when Paul would go preaching to a place that would say, yes, let's hear what you have to say. You're a new guy in town. Let's hear what you have to say. And they would sit and they would listen. Well, you're not going to get it if you don't listen. It's hard for someone who's like, preaching to say that, because what am I doing now? I'm just blah, 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 blah. Like, you really need to listen. And I'm going to say for 45 minutes, the best thing to do is to listen. <laughs> Thoughts, questions, I'm going to listen now. I'm going to listen. Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns? I don't think I have any deep thoughts or anything. I, I definitely agree with this, because it's something that society today, and apparently, I guess, society back then, too, you know, it's something that they don't do. The usually, usually the the least informed are the ones who are always you know talking and trying to fight their opinion into being 
the accepted one, I guess. Or the, and it's, it's painful to watch sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah, if I say it loud enough, or just repeat the lie over, over and over yeah. again, it's going to get accepted as the truth, because I'm repeating it over and over yeah. again. And not that I think I'm smarter or wiser than anyone, but I don't speak a lot because I know because of the fact that I know that I've got a lot of things wrong, so why would why would I want to share my probably wrong opinion with people? <laughs> right. Instead, it's just better to the the the, the phrase. Uh, it's better to you know be silent and be thought of a fool rather than open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If I'm gonna open my mouth and say, okay, come listen to me. Well, my opinion about such and such, my opinion about who the next president should be, is not so important and also transient because uh, the discussion that we, that we had in 2016 is not going to be the same conversation we're going to have in 2020. Mm -hmm. And who cares? <laughs> but if I say, here's something from the Word of God that I understand and can hopefully help you to understand it better too, then that's a useful thing. That's something that's useful to people. That's what we should each be doing. And especially in our religious life, people should look at us and say, they're the guys that always do this. And the always do this should be something that Scripture's telling us to do, as opposed to something that we made up. And quite often, what, what many religious groups are distinguished as is something that they made up. That's a strike against them in the first part. But you see how it all fits together. If I'm going to say amen, it's because I own it. I own what you're saying. I own what you're saying because I understand the Word of God and I understand that's exactly what you're saying. I own it. Amen. And if that's not happening, if the person who's in the front speaking is not saying something that you can really say amen to, something needs to be done because that's not according to the pattern we have here and you know that's what jesus always did that's why he said truly truly i say to you and he said things that they didn't agree with because in john chapter 5 it's similar to what he said to them in john chapter 10. what he had just done was he healed somebody this is the pool in earlier in this chapter pool and you know that whole story mm -hmm. it happened to be on the sabbath jesus did that on purpose and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, verse 16. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them. So he follows up with the same thought that got, got them on him in John chapter 10. My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's how they understood it. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's the way they thought of things in those days. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And that's what he's saying. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will be shown him, so that you may marvel, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, they're already on him and not wanting to believe him. 
And instead of saying, all right, I'm going to maybe back off, he just takes it to a more extreme level. Why can he do that? Why can he have a conversation with people and he's saying, okay, these people are not with me on this. But then he continues along because he's saying exactly what the father has told him. He doesn't have to be political. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. So the people wanted to stone him for <laughs> saying he's the son are not going to be very happy with this statement at all. For the father judges no one, but has given all the judgment to the son, so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And then he does another. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, so what does that mean? They also believe his word. Whoever hears my word. So here, hearing, what does hear, hear mean? Hear doesn't mean just listening to it. He's saying, hears and believes. Understands it, believes it. It's like when you might say to somebody, yeah, I hear you. I hear your brother. Here is being used in that sense. Interesting how that connects with Acts chapter 7. Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever hears my word, it doesn't mean whoever's ear the sound waves hit and is vibrating their eardrum. It means that they're hearing them and they're taking them to heart. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. So he hears my word, meaning he's believing my word, means he believes who sent me. Connection. You believe Jesus, you believe God. You're honoring the Father. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Interesting, huh? Because what does he say? The words I speak to you, they are truth and they are life, Jesus says. Where is that? And that's actually in uh, John chapter 4, I think. How can the words that any of us speak be life if they're exactly what the Father says? And then he does another truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He's not only the Son of God, but he's the Son of Man. So he can judge because why? Because he's come in the flesh. And he's proven that it's possible to walk around in the flesh and still do and say exactly what the Father has instructed us to do. Do not marvel at this. So he understands that he's saying something. So he's in front of a crowd that's not exactly with him. But he continues along this line, saying these things that are hard to take. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Any thoughts about that? This is how the whole amen and doing and saying exactly what the Father says and being familiar enough with the Bible to be able to say what it means and when people come up to you and say, yeah, but isn't such and such true? You're able to say, well, no, it's not because it's not in the Bible. Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns? It is... 
I guess, good to, or informative, or eye-opening, something like that, to, you know, look back at this and have it pointed out, you know, how adamantly Jesus is saying these words, I guess, you know, yeah, that, that, yeah. that, yeah, I kind of wish, I don't know if they, maybe they tried this, I don't know, but uh, I kind of wish there was like a, a live action version of all this, you know, so just you could see, you know, when, I don't know, when I read the Bible, usually it's a lot more monotone than, mm -hmm. than I'm sure it was, uh, just because, right. you know, part of it is, <laughs> I don't want to say drudgery, but, you know, I, I know in my mind I have to get through this, and right. so that automatically, because I want, I mean, I want to get through it, but I have to get through it also, as opposed to, you know, like when you're reading fiction or, you know, non-fiction, other, other stuff, you know, you're doing it usually because you just want to, not that you have to. Right. But so, so I just, you know, it, sometimes I just plod on verse, 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 right. and, and I miss a lot of the the nuance, the, the actual feeling and meaning behind a lot of the stuff. And so, you know, it is, and if you look at the, you know, like the amount of time that he says truly, truly here, he says, I can see it three times there in like ten verses or something like that. And why is he doing that? Because apparently he thought this was super, super, super important. And also because... Yeah, absolutely people true. People weren't listening. Yeah, the crowd was not with him. I don't know how often that's happened to you, but I've been speaking things in front of a crowd, and the crowd is not with me. Mm -hmm. You have a choice as to what you're going to do. Is my message important enough that maybe I'm going to try and add a little bit of emphasis to this and perhaps win some of these people over? Because by and large, the crowd is not with me. They want to stone me. They want to kill me. So maybe the thing to do is to stop talking and go away. But what does Jesus do? He says, I'm telling you the truth here. You know, he's not wagging his finger at them, but it's kind of like, that's what's going on here. I'm telling you the truth that comes from God, and you need to listen to this. And why am I putting this emphasis here? Because you're not listening. It's like a parent correcting their child. I told you not to run out in traffic. One of these days, you're going to get run over. You want to jump the light? Well, what if the automobile that's coming is jumping the light, too? I can say this. I do it all the time. I'm always running out into the crosswalk ahead of the light. I'm counting on that vehicle is coming and they're going to be operating their motor vehicle responsibly and stop. If they don't, I'm dead meat. So the parent is saying to the child, how many times do I have to tell you? Cross on the green, that in between. Wait! And the kid runs out into the traffic anyway, so he pulls him back and says, what did I just tell you? And he's like putting emphasis on it. That's Jesus here. He's saying, truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth here. If it was not so, I would have told you. It's true. And he's saying things that we do marvel at. This is a life and death thing. And this is early in John's Gospel. So he's also helping them to change their understanding of life and death. How can you cross over from death to life? He says that in verse 24. That's a very particular thing to say. He didn't have to put it that way. But he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
And he doesn't leave it there. He says, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So if death is a final end to all things, how can you pass from death to life? Mm -hmm. This is one of the jobs Jesus has in delivering the gospel to people is to change their understanding of life and death. Death is separation. Life is in God. The God the Father has life and he's given life to the Son. And how is he given life to the Son? And how does the Son give life to whom he will? How's that done? What's he doing here? Teaching us. Yeah, he's preaching the gospel. Isn't that interesting? If I've just been hit by a car and I'm laying by the side of the road and the EMTs come, there are things that they have to do to keep me alive. And if they don't do those things, what's going to happen? If I just bleed out by the side of the road, I'm going to die. It's a life or death thing. We need to stop the bleeding. We need to do this. We need to do all these physical things to keep this person alive. Because they're now in a life or death situation because of their carelessness, because they ran out into the street and got run over by a bus. Well, spiritually, these people are in a similar situation. They're in a life or death situation. They ran out into the traffic and they got hit by the bus. And now Jesus is giving the emergency treatment that they need. And what is that emergency treatment? He's preaching them the gospel. They need to believe it. And then, and we know that the believing that Jesus is always talking about is the believing and the doing. They need to believe it, they need to follow it, and then they're going to have eternal life. That's the emergency procedure now. You have these people who are dying in their sins. What do you need to do? You need to preach them the gospel, they need to believe it, and then they need to do it. And then, they're going to cross over from death to life. But it's as urgent as that, though. So you have to see it as urgent as that. If you just leave the person who's in a horrible state on the doors of death because of something stupid that they've done, or just because of some unfortunate thing that has happened to them, well then they're just going to die. The emergency medical technicians have to do certain things, and they do those things. They're equipped to do those things. What if they show up and they go, oh, we need to stop the bleeding. Oh, we don't have any equipment here to do that. We don't have a gurney to put them on. You know, oh, their spine might be injured. We don't have one of those backboards. We're not equipped to do it. That person may just bleed out and die while they're looking for, well, what are we going to use? What equips us? What equipment do we have? Just the Bible. Right, 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scriptures breathe out uh, from God and is useful for teaching. And so we're equipped by the gospel. So we come to people and we go, this is an emergency spiritual situation because they believe all these wrong things like it was with the Jews at that time when Jesus was there. Then we have to do exactly what Jesus did, which is the thing that's going to help them is the word that came from the Father. From the Father to Jesus, Jesus to the apostles, the apostles to us. And it's our job to figure out how to say it without messing it up. Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns? Have I answered your question for last chapter seven? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I think so, I mean, I'm pretty sure I understand. But, I mean, I understand better. I'm yeah. pretty well, sure I understand it. Maybe not completely, because I'm sure, you know, well, it ties into a lot of things. But right. Pretty thoroughly.
Yeah, and that's what we're supposed to be doing, helping each other understand it better. The word Amen describes a very important concept and helps us to understand what God expects from each of us concerning our relationship to His Word and also to one another. Our spiritual conversation should consist of well-considered and deliberate elements that we are so firmly convinced are absolutely true. We should take these truths to heart, own them, and cling to them for dear life. We should share these vital truths with one another. In fact, our lives and our teaching should be characterized by these life-giving spiritual principles so much that all will be compelled to respond with a fervent Amen. The word Amen has come to mean nothing more than an utterance we automatically make in response to a public prayer. It is helpful for us to study scripture and research what God wants us to know about this very important word, and even more importantly, how this concept should direct our spiritual lives. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or even if you have any helpful suggestions, please feel free to email me at james at org. That's all for now. Goodbye and God bless. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be.